Well, all right. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. This is the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We're presented by Hip Politics Network. Lots of great content there. Would encourage you to check out. Excited about this most recent episode of the podcast because I get to talk to somebody who um, I've actually done a good deal of media with in the last couple of months, and she's a rising star um, in the DC reporting world, has a lot of great sources and a lot of great insights, and I'm talking about Maya King, who is a reporting fellow with Politico. Maya, thanks so much for joining. Hi, Joel. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. I hope you're doing well. I hope you are trying to beat the heat here in the D.C. area like I am. Um, Maya, I want to talk today about Trump and the obvious tack that his campaign is going to take this cycle around culture wars um, and and just kind of get your observations. I know you've done a lot of reporting around this issue. Would love to kind of hear just kind of your big picture thoughts and then we can kind of dig deep into um, the implications of this for, um, you know, just what's going on on Capitol Hill, any legislative impact and then any political impact um, with the 2020 race, both at the top of the ticket with Trump v. Biden. And then also maybe want to talk a little bit about how that might impact some Senate races. So um, looking forward to a good discussion there. So why don't we jump right in, Maya? Just maybe give the listener kind of a, a, a high level on where we are with this. Obviously, Trump gave the speech at Mount Rushmore um, over the Fourth of July weekend. What is the impact of that in terms of how he is signaling how he's going to focus his campaign this cycle? Well, you mentioned um, a culture war, and I think that's the term that has been thrown around often by both reporters who are familiar with Trump's approach and those who are just able to see it very plainly. Um, His Mount Rushmore speech, I think we will look back on as a moment where the president very explicitly marked um, himself as an opponent, an enemy, if you will, of uh, the movements that have risen out of George Floyd's death and against police violence and really against um, this concept now of what, um, I mean, white supremacy, to put it very plainly, and that includes, you know, racism on um, an institutional level, that includes statues, which we also mentioned has become a very big debate, and to some in the movement, that also includes the White House, and that includes the rhetoric that the president has put forth, not just as it relates to um, black Americans and those who are protesting, but also to Asian Americans, making them an enemy figure through the coronavirus, uh, Latin Americans, making them enemy figures through immigration. I mean, these are all of the things that people are thinking about and that Trump knows people are thinking about, that he is really stoked um, in, in his in his talking points, though. I believe his Mount Rushmore speech was especially ex- exemplary of, of that dynamic and of his commitment, the president's commitment to uh, putting himself forward as a figure who is against um, protest, really, who is against challenging the status quo and, and who is against challenging his his um, his right to the presidency. Maya, I'm glad you started your answer talking about this whole term culture war. And I, I do think um, language is important here. 
Um, I've heard activists uh, both, you know, at the grassroots level and at the grass tops level really push back on the idea that this is a culture war because really this is more of a race war um, that the president is very boldly jumping into. Unlike any we've seen, at least in, in, you know, this generation, probably since my parents' generation in the 50s, 60s and 70s, did you hear national politicians speaking with this kind of, um, you know, real kind of bold uh, disregard for, um, you know, unity and for bringing people together, particularly on racial lines. I mean, this is really a race war that the president is stoking. I don't even know if that's a, a question of, um, I, I'm not even sure if that is um, mischaracterizing it. I think that if you talk to some of the president's aides, it seems like they wouldn't even lean away from that. Well, it's true that the president has definitely looked um, to the racial tensions in this country to garner strength. There's no doubt about that. And there is conversation among a number of his supporters, especially those who are members of alt-right groups, that um, there's a desire, even a hunger, for a war, a civil war um, among the races. I, I think we have to be careful to to characterize that and say that you know the president um, is hoping to stoke them, though I don't think there's any doubt that something along those lines, that an outward conflict amid the races, not necessarily just black versus white or white versus brown or black versus brown, any of those dynamics, I think the president looks at those things and thinks that they help him. And the perfect example I can think of just sitting here talking with you is the retweet um, that was you know, seen around the world a few weeks ago uh, where President Trump retweeted a video from the Villages community in Florida uh, that showed people shouting and, and, and saying white power. I, don't, I think that's kind of a clear-cut example of the president trying to use these, these tensions to his biggest advantage. I, I think that's a, that's, a good, um, yeah, that's a good flashpoint to point out. You know, something that's interesting to me, Maya, is I noticed and I, I listened very carefully to Trump and his supporters and their language in what I would call the immediate aftermath of the George Floyd killing and the kind of the early stages of the protest. And I, you know, I you, again, you have to be very careful with your words here. Um, I actually think that the president kind of sounded philosophically the right notes early on. But then there seemed to be a tweak. There seemed to be an evolution. And it's interesting because it, it almost feels like he felt that he was losing a connection with his base. He felt that the, the politics of the moment were getting away from him. He's not comfortable with unity politics. He's more comfortable with division politics talk about that a little bit if you don't mind like the evolution on the floyd message because initially the president even acknowledged look this was uh this is looks like a horrible video and this was some you know he's saying kind of the sanitized republican version of we have to seek justice for the floyd family he was saying that early on and then he transitioned talk a little bit about that so i think where we saw that transition was when the protests grew beyond just Minneapolis, Minnesota, when the protests spread then quickly to New York and then to California and then to Washington, D.C. And within a week, there were protests in all 50 states. And if I'm President Trump, I'm panicking at that point because not only is this a referendum on policing and police violence, the protests quickly turned into a referendum on presidential leadership. And so I think where we saw Trump start to um, devolve 
really in his 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 talking points around um, Floyd's death was on the nature of these protests, right? It was not just these are it was you know these are these are violent protesters. I'm only going to um, you know acknowledge and accept and see as okay those who are engaging in peaceful protest. And very quickly, you heard the same talking points from those who would I think in other circumstances likely be um, against protest. Perfect example were a number of, um, of police leaders and police officers. There was a sheriff in Jacksonville, Florida, who last week released a very thinly veiled threat against protesters saying, look, you have, if you bring weapons, we have weapons too. Um, and then of course, this harkens to when, to Trump's, um, you know, comment, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. That was the ultimate. Uh, that that seemed of, to be the moment where it really pivoted. I mean, if you really want to yeah. kind of find a fault line, that's when it happened, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And so, what you're seeing then now is is there's a there's a certain way to protest, and I think the line between peaceful protest and violent protest is very thin. Um, the definition is very thin, especially to those uh, who are close to Trump and who support Trump, because it's not necessarily the nature of the protest but how uh, his supporters and, and those who support the president might see um, a protest in general who, who just might disagree with it altogether. Again, we're here with Maya King, a reporting fellow for Politico. Um, and Maya is, is talking through just some of the recent events related to, um, you know, frankly, you call it culture wars, call it um, racial disharmony and President Trump and you know how that impacts the political scene but also just culturally talking about some of the impact there maya also i, I i'm curious as to kind of your take and, and what your reporting has informed on this around kind of the the historical parallel here is there any like historical parallel to what we're experiencing with president trump here i think you know the lazy comparison i think a lot of people make is nixon um kind of the law and order idea it feels to me a little bit closer to George Wallace. Is is there something in recent history that we have to kind of compare this moment to to have a president that is is actively stoking these these very tense um, feelings within the country around race? Hmm. It is a very interesting question, Joel, and I think George Wallace might be a a more apt example. The first thing that actually comes to my mind, I am a native Floridian and I can remember the Dream Defenders occupying the uh, Florida State Capitol in 2012 in the wake of the killing of Trayvon Martin. And um, at the time, our governor was Rick Scott, who is now a senator, a Trump ally, and has always been a very staunch conservative Republican. Um, And there was a lot of tension there around race um, within the state. It wasn't necessarily a national story, but what you had was a very similar dynamic that we see now. Lots of young people of a number of different racial and socioeconomic backgrounds engaging in very uh, public protest for a sustained period of time that is kind of disrupting in some people's circles, you know, everyday life or at least everyday conversation. And it's starting to become, it's starting to just not only impact the way that folks you know interact with um, with younger people but the way that folks interact with each other and that's the danger um, in the rhetoric I think that President Trump has espoused in reaction to 
the protests that we see on a national scale. These are enemies of the people, very much like the press. And these are dangerous, these are vile um, individuals, according to the president and his supporters. And my concern, not only after looking at these for myself, but talking with protesters and those who are organizing a lot of public and um, and kind of on the sidelines um, uh, organ- organizing, honestly, in, in reaction to the death of George Floyd, is that these protests might turn violent, but not because the protesters are being violent, but rather because the president's supporters or just simply those who do not agree with um, the goals and objectives of this movement will begin to infringe upon it in a way that harms the lives of people and that gets in the way of of the entire message and at that point you have to kind of shut things down but one last point i'll make though is that the dream defenders um the example that i started with i mean they're still very much around they're a lot older but they're a lot more organized and they um have a a larger platform now given the times but it was always growing and so i think the same is true of this movement while we're seeing it over sustained over um, almost a two month period. I mean, even when the protests do begin to disseminate and dissipate, I don't think the movement and this feeling is is going anywhere for a really long time. And I think that was true of what people were saying in in the sixties, long before I was around. You know, Maya. Um, you know, you talk about kind of the dream defenders, and and just it, it really just kind of makes me realize that. There's so much of Trump's political fortunes that's just tied around racial grievance politic. And again, even you, you want to take the sting out of that and make it less caustic and not make any aspersions about the president and what his heart might portend. But just the centrality of race and racial grievance politics to his political fortunes and success. Obviously, you start with Obama and birtherism and you go to his campaign and, you know, Mexicans are rapists and um, they're taking our jobs, and he talks about the Mexican judge not being, you know, be, being biased against him. And you just kind of go through all of these touch points through the Trump political trajectory. Race feels like it's at the center of everything. Does the reporting bear that out? I mean, it does. It does. A lot of a lot of the reporting that bears it out, of course, is a lot are the anonymous sources who are really willing to talk about what this president says and does and what his strategy is, but. I think I think you can kind of look and see it. The examples that you just gave are are absolutely spot on. This president benefits from discord. I mean, he benefits from division that much we've seen in 2016, and we're starting to see it now. Though um, it's it's almost playing against him because the counterforce to that is a very strong show of unison. Um, or unity, <laughs> sorry, it, <laughs> among Democrats um, on and and on the left, there was a poll that came out today that said Biden is is his chances of um, of losing support from the far left have almost totally disappeared. He doesn't face a far left challenger like Hillary Clinton did with Bernie Sanders in 2016. Younger voters, voters who were 100% Bernie, former non-voters. I mean, all kinds of people who exist on this very nebulous left side of American politics have pretty much coalesced now behind this one person. And that doesn't play into Trump's hand whatsoever. So I think you almost have an anti-example to the president's strategy, which is actually unity is a really great way to win things, (laughs) surprisingly. 
and, and that's and that's really what we're seeing. Well, unity is a really great way to win things, and also Maya, historically, incumbent presidents do not run campaigns that are out and out about subtraction. I mean, that's essentially the campaign that Trump is running at this point. Is it is not a campaign of addition; it's a campaign of subtraction and division. And again, that's not just rhetoric, but that's just fact. I mean, Trump has doubled down on the bet that there are more, you know, white, male, less educated, more rural voters out there that he can squeeze out of the electorate and that those folks are not represented in public polling and public reporting and that there's this silent majority of folks who are who can still be there's still more of that vote. Right. He's assuming that there's still more um, from the, the orange of kind of the Trump voter that can be squeezed out. And that that is the that's the plan. And the plan is not to secure independence and moderates. The plan is not to go and maybe lure over anxious Democrats. Right. And it doesn't feel like there's a real path there. Like there's I'm, I'm look, there's you can never say never to anything in politics. But is there anything that would suggest that there's any real path for Trump with that strategy? Well, I, I I think that November will will tell us whether or not this has been an effective strategy. But the polls right now are saying absolutely not. And one thing that I've talked about just with my colleagues and floated um, with sources is this idea that the president has started to appeal to a smaller uh, slice of his base. So now his talking points, he's talking to the most extreme of his supporters, the people who will fill an arena in the middle of a pandemic to see him talk. That's not a lot of people anymore. That's not a winning coalition. So that's why you but that's why you see these talking points on things like heritage, dog whistle words like that, like they're coming to um, infringe upon our heritage and our statues, the talking points on race that we mentioned earlier. Um, Second Amendment rights as like a a broken record. And even his advisors are saying, look, you need to find better talking points, broader talking points that are actually going to win you some points going into November. And he's just, I mean, he's not listening is is my interpretation of this um, and, and what I've seen and heard. So I don't think he's he's in a great place right now, but um, unless there is some willingness, one, to actually enact real policy on the coronavirus, or let me back up, one, actually acknowledge the reality of the coronavirus, and two, start to actually speak to some voters who might still be swayed. I think there is a, a gettable chunk of people who want to see it for the president, but simply can't because every day and every time he talks to these really egregious um, uh, subjects and really kind of digs the hole deeper, there are people just like older white voters, the folks that we saw in the villages. If the, if the only group that you're getting at are those who are ready to say public white power, I, I would like to believe that that's not a, a, a big enough coalition in this country to actually win an election. But I think I probably said something similar in 2016. So we'll have to really wait and we, see. We all did. Yeah. Look, there is a there is an immeasurable stress, I think, on the Trump voter or the potential Trump voter. That's hard to measure the same way. It's hard to measure that that silent majority that Trump and his allies like to point to and say you can't capture them in polling. I also don't think you can capture in polling the exhaustion factor of Trump 
and the day-to-day barrage of all of these indefensible things that at a certain point, if you're a person in the middle who just maybe voted for Trump because of judges and taxes, it does create a real quandary for you to say, do I want my friends and neighbors to believe that I support these things? And is that worth it versus just voting for a Joe Biden who is not the kind of classic, scary tax and spend liberal, right? Like that, just from political science, Trump is is putting his voters a bit in a box. That's that's what jumps out to me. I think it jumps out to me as well. And what I've also thought about a lot is how uh, Joe Biden is a is a likable figure. He's not an exciting figure to a number of voters, but he certainly no one can disagree that the man is, you know, in comparison to Trump, like a bad person or has a plan, you know, that that does more harm to the country than good. And I think a growing number of of voters, particularly those who are on the fence, those who didn't vote in 2016 or maybe even voted for Trump in 2016 for any number of reasons, who are now saying, you know, I can't in good conscience anymore support this man when I have an alternative that's like not that bad. And I think that that's what that's what Biden really has going for him is one that he wins by not losing. And when he does come out and actually put forth policies, he's making sense. He's laying very heavily into the steady handed leadership. And I would definitely be patting myself on the back if I'm the person who thought about battle for the soul of America, because that phrase has totally taken on new significance just in the last two months. Absolutely. It's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We're here with Maya King, reporting fellow from Politico, who has been kind enough to spend a little bit of time with us this afternoon. Um, Maya, in the last couple minutes that we have here together, I wanted to sharpen our focus a little bit and talk about the 2020 race. We, we teased that a little bit with Trump v. Biden, but then also maybe some down-ballot races and how kind of this, this cloud that's hanging over the country, not just the coronavirus crowd, uh, a cloud rather, right? It's the kind of this, this cultural upheaval cloud that's hanging over the country, how that, you know, will impact the race. And look, you, you talked about Biden there just before we did the reset. And, you know, I've been calling it the do no harm strategy, that Biden strategy really is um, to be as unoffensive to as many voters as possible. And it's usually it's the opposite of what a challenger would normally do. Normally, a challenger would be afraid of it being a referendum um, versus an incumbent, because historically, we know incumbents tend to win reelection, at least in the modern era. But in this instance, it feels like Joe Biden is just happy with doing a couple of avails a week that um, do not expose him too much to press, that does not give the president and his allies a lot to hit, to kind of do a rope-a-dope strategy, to take a, a lazy boxing metaphor, and to, to, to try to ride that to uh, victory in November. Yeah, and I, and I think it's been an effective strategy. I mean, look, we've been talking about who the vice president or the former vice president is going to choose for his vice president for like three months. You know, the Biden campaign has been very purposely tight-lipped, very strategic about what information and, and they, re- they release and, w- and when Biden, you know, even makes public appearances. And again, I think it gets back to that steady-handed leadership that everyone is so hungry for in this country right now. And just this idea that this is an alternative who, one, you know, has his 
um, his day one plan and has started to release those, I think that's probably, a, I think that's really a smart move. Um, and the fact that now as the, as the former vice president has really contrasted himself with the, with the current president, who's kind of all over the place on the coronavirus, we have uh, Vice President Biden, who's like, well, I actually think I'm going to take this slower. I have a very multi-phase, uh, multi-step plan that they're planning to roll out over the next few weeks on how, if he were elected, this would actually be run. You know, that's a strategy that makes people think, okay, well, this is what I know I'm getting into. And I don't think they were thinking about that with Trump. I mean, maybe some people were in 2016, knowing what they were getting into and knowing what the benefits would be for them. Um, of a Trump presidency, but now that, that the stakes are so high, the situation is so dire, um, and the fate of American democracy seems to kind of hang in the balance, um, someone who is actually giving us a plan for how they um, would like to get, get us out of this, that's just a welcome thing, you know, to, to consider, even. Yeah, Maya, I don't know if you saw this. I think it actually may have been in Politico today. There's some reporting that says that did a study, I think, of Warren voters, and it said something like 96% of Warren voters had already in some way, shape, or form pledged support to Biden, you know, kind of taking the Warren voters like the far left flank of the party now. I don't, I don't know if that factors in Sanders voters, but I guess the point there being the assimilation of the Democratic Party under the tent of Biden has happened, I think, a lot quicker and with um, a lot less interruption than a lot of people might have assumed. It's been a really seamless process to get the party behind him. I, I have not heard, just as a lifelong Democrat and someone who's been in Democratic politics for you know 15 plus years, I haven't heard a lot of the um, you know machinations that normally happen around this time about discontent with Joe Biden, which obviously exists given the contentious primary, but. You don't hear that. Um, do, do, do you, have you done any reporting that, that talks a little bit about that and talks about um, or, or that digs into, um, you know, just where the Democratic Party is in terms of being united behind Joe Biden? Well, I mean, I've done a lot of reporting kind of on the sidelines in terms of how people are feeling about the, the Biden presidency and how different groups that might normally not support him, like Warren um, perhaps like Warren progressives and younger voters and younger voters of color in particular, former non-voters. I mean, these are all people now who are saying, well, yeah, I mean, I have, I feel like I have no choice but to cast my vote and to cast my vote for Biden in November. And this is feeling more and more like a life-saving vote. Um, people have a, a sense of urgency around making sure that Trump doesn't win a second term. I mean, you even have what I think is most fascinating are a number of very prominent activists who in the primary season would have been absolutely anti-Biden who are now like, look, I don't think I have much of a choice here. I know that if I want my, um, my, my if, I, if I want to reach my goals here politically, and I want to actually, you know, see in America that I can improve within the confines of the things that I do or that activists do, you know, they're telling me I, I, Biden is the only choice that I have. And that's, you know, for better or for worse, but it, set, it sets up for a really interesting, um, a really interesting actually deep stakes because now that the Warren flank has kind of said that they are unconditionally behind the former vice president, it opens up a big door um, for the woman of color that I think now he will inevitably choose. Yeah, and you and you frame that as an inevitable choice. And 
you know, Maya, I've had people ask me, other reporters on and off the record, do you think he will pick a black woman or better yet, does he have to pick a black woman? And my answer is he doesn't have to, un, you know, quote unquote, but he should. And he should because you're going to spend the next three or four months explaining to voters why Gretchen Whitmer or Elizabeth Warren is more qualified to be vice president than Kamala Harris, when in this environment, one, that's probably not what you want to be spending your time doing. Two, that's a hard case to make. And the fact that there are so many highly qualified women of color, I mentioned Kamala Harris there, but you could say the same for Susan Rice, Stacey Abrams, even lesser known candidates like Val Demings and Keisha Lance Bottoms. So it's it's to me, it's not a have to, it's a should. Does your reporting give any insight to that? Yeah, I think so. I think that's exactly it. I mean, the vice president has said, you know, I'm going to pick whoever I'm most simpatico with. And that gets to, I mean, he doesn't have to do anything he doesn't want to do. But again, he probably should pick a woman of color. And and this is, I mean, a, I mean, he has to kind of read the room, too. <laughs> I think if you look around the country, um, everyone from large corporations to newsrooms to uh, restaurants, I mean, everyone has just totally rebranded now to reflect a commitment to diversity, a commitment to getting it right, quote unquote, and actually engaging people of color um, in the decisions that they make. And so why not take that, you know, potentially to the White House? A lot of the people who I've spoken to who are in favor of a woman of color president, especially those who are in favor of a black woman president, have cited the fact that black women and um, and women of color have played um, a, cru- a cru- crucial role in getting Democratic leaders elected. They turn out in large numbers. They encourage their families and friends to do the same. Um, they, they mobilize. They organize around candidates that they like. And Biden is no exception. So this is not just an opportunity to recognize the moment, but to recognize decades and decades of work. And there's something to be said about that. I still think symbols matter. My last question or two before we get you out of here. Um, I mentioned earlier just the potential for down ballot impact given the moment that we're in. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about Biden, but I'm also watching these Senate races around the country. Um, you know, the dynamic races you've got in Georgia where there's one runoff race and then there's one, you know, classic um, primary uh, campaign going on with the two Georgia Senate seats. You've got a competitive race in Kansas. You've got uh, competitive races that we're anticipating in Colorado and Maine um, and Arizona where, you know, it might not be a competitive race to everybody's surprise because Martha McSally is struggling to stay even with Mark Kelly, who's the challenger there. Um, I wonder if Trump and the the problematic nature of his candidacy that I think we've teased out in the first half hour here or so, um, wonder how that impacts um, down ballot Republicans. Um, There is evidence that there was some ticket splitting in 2016 um, in in certain parts of the country that might have gone for Trump or may have Trump may have been a problem, but um, they might have gone for local officials. Um, who they liked over Trump, right? Maybe they didn't love Trump and his rhetoric, but they liked the Republican that was on the ticket. So there was some ticket splitting that was going on there. Would would we be smart to anticipate that type of dynamic this cycle as well? Well, I mean, you know, it's such a it's a it's a difficult question, and I really 
I don't I don't think so <laughs> from what I can see. I mean, I, I'll, I'll say this. I remember uh, several months ago in January when it still felt like anyone's race, how many people were saying that Biden was still a really great pick because of his down ballot appeal and the fact that his steady handed leadership slogan was actually a really big help not only to um, other moderate Democrats who were running for governorships and state house races and those like that, but even progressive challengers. And, um, you know, a lot of my colleagues and, and their reporting has reflected a growing sense of worry now among a number of Republicans who once felt very safe, who fear that the president's rhetoric and the way that he has scared folks and the way that he has mishandled the coronavirus now will in turn impact um, and their own political livelihoods. And so it's going to take a measure. I mean, we're just going to have to wait and see. And I, I kind of, um, I mean, I, I hate to be that person to say like, you know, it's just going to be one of those things that we have to really wait and see. But if the election were tomorrow, it, it is it is a democratic sweep. And I mean, I'll allude to um, Amy Walters' piece earlier today, I believe, that was talking about how um, the Cook Political Report has basically handed a majority of races up and down the ballot to democrats um and that's i mean a really trusted source yeah the so ratings the I, ratings I, changes I, yeah they, they, there's some very significant ratings changes in favor of democrats over the last week yeah yeah so um you know assuming that holds steady we have a good idea of how november might look i mean i've seen people float the idea of a blue texas I think anything is possible. I, and, and as a as a now a kind of grizzled old political hand, I will say I've been hearing about Texas turning blue for the entirety of the time I've been in politics. I'll believe it when I see it. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, we'll we'll see. Two two things I'll just point out to you really quickly. I noticed Lindsey Graham breaking with the president on that Bubba Wallace tweet um, a couple of days ago when when the president. You know, tweeted the criticism of Bubba, Bubba Wallace, which was pretty ridiculous, especially considering it's like two weeks ago at this point. And Lindsey Graham came out pretty quickly and pushed back on the president on that. And then when you look at that police reform effort in the Senate that Tim Scott was leading, and I keep pointing this out, the people who were flanking Scott when he introduced that were Mitch McConnell, John Cornyn, Lindsey Graham, Ben Sass, all Republicans in cycle. That tells me that they know that this issue of racial disharmony and police violence and racial animus, this is a big issue and a big driver for their voters back home, not just their black voters, by the way, for white independents and moderates who don't want to be seen historically on the wrong side of these issues. Yep, absolutely. And that's, and that's what I'm, um, I'm, I'm seeing and hearing and, and reviewing and reporting is that people are not only nervous, they're a little bit scared. Um, and there's this idea of how will I look now in 2020, a year um, that has been tumultuous on a number of levels, but has certainly, um, at least in the United States, established itself as a modern reckoning on race and racism in this country. How do I feel supporting not only a president who has espoused racist rhetoric, but those who back him up in that? Um, and I, another great example, I am a Floridian and I see, I see this dynamic at play quite often. Um, though I live in a very blue county, um, in Leon County, the, the the dynamics and the conversations that are being had are still very much along these lines. Um, and especially now in the setup for the Republican National Convention to come. I mean, these are all just, there's so many moving parts here, but I think at the end um, of all of this, what, you, what it boils down to is a president who has has really committed to taking America back 
to a time um, where rhetoric like this and, and words like this were were the law and where racism um, and racist rhetoric was something that was not only okay but commonly accepted and even encouraged and that's not really the America we live in anymore and so you know it de- we'll see if folks are really hungry for for a change of pace or whether they're willing to um, let the president have another four years to, to try to get it right uh, though you know it's it's again it's kind of a wait and see game but the polls right now are saying that that's a very unlikely scenario. So, Well, I think that's very well summarized, Maya. And this is the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne, and we have been fortunate enough to be joined this afternoon by Maya King, a reporting fellow for Politico, um, a rising star in the reporting game, and uh, would encourage all of our listeners to follow Maya on Twitter. Maya, where can um, my, my listeners find you on Twitter? My, my Twitter handle is um, at Maya, M-A-Y-A, a king that's at maya a king and maya is there any recent reporting or upcoming reporting we should be on the lookout for from you uh sure i'm working on a story right now about um black mayors and black women mayors in um four prominent uh united states cities chicago dc atlanta and san francisco and the ways that they've navigated um not only the coronavirus and its impacts on black folks but the protests in their cities as well so that should be out pretty soon Very much looking forward to hearing that. Again, this is the Here Comes the Pain podcast. We're grateful to Maya King for the time she's given us this afternoon. Um, Thank you, as always, for joining us. And we look forward to continuing the conversation next week. Thanks so much. Thanks, Joel.